I want to speak to you this morning about uh, becoming believable believers. We've talked a lot lately about being believers and knowing for certain that we are believers. And in, our, in my last message, I quoted a verse. It was just part of the message. I didn't comment on it. I just quoted a verse that is our text for today, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 12, which we'll read in just a minute. And this is where the, the aged spiritual giant Paul is speaking to young Timothy, his son in the ministry. And I don't have enough words to describe how important this subject is. A few years ago, I prepared a message on uh, this subject that I never preached. You say, well, why didn't you preach it? Wasn't you prepared? Yeah, I was prepared, but it was 26 pages long, and I just figured that's too long for a regular service. So, uh, but if you want a 26-page sermon on it, well, I could I could do that because this entails so many different things when we talk about the importance of us being believable believers. And so the difficulty today is figuring out what what to leave out, not what to say. Now, I don't have 26 pages here, by the way, in case you're uh, fearful of that. I'm glad I can look back and say that I've been blessed by having had some good examples in my life. I'm talking about especially in my Christian life. And, and a few is often all it takes to make a huge difference in a person's life. Sometimes just one person can be the inspiration to make a huge difference in your life. One good example can be worth a million admirers. There's so many people, you know, today that all they're concerned about is people admiring them. Uh, it's the Hollywood, the Hollywood philosophy. If they've got a lot of admirers, that's all that matters to them. And what they need is one good example, because one good example can be more help than a hundred helpers. Just having someone that, that not only tells you the way, but shows you the way. And every Christian should inspire to be a good example. Now let's read our text here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse number 12, Paul says to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. I preached a message with this title about four years ago. It was an entirely different message, and I remember that I started out by talking about what we see so much in churches today and how that so many times church services have been uh, turned into some sort of a entertainment venue J just to excite people. I was thinking about while Brother Nolan was singing that song, one of the key elements in, to, in churches today is trying to build a, a big crowd because it's all about how many people you can get there and the money that you can collect from them and the status symbol you become among the churches. That's what it's all about. And so many of them will have a, a, a monthly professional quartet come in, really good singing, 
course, made up of people that don't believe anything at all like what the Bible teaches or we believe. But boy, they can draw a crowd with that. I'll tell you, I'd rather hear Brother Nolan get up here and sing from the heart than any professional quartet that exists in this world because I know that it's real. I know it's coming from the heart. It's so sad today to look upon people that because of their talent, they are admired. And the bottom line is they're not giving a good example because, listen, whether, whether it's preaching, whether it's singing, whether it's praying or anything else we do, it's crucial that we be, as believers, believable. That people believe that they receive the message. The most glorious truths can be made repulsive to other people whenever they look at our life and see that we say one thing but we live another. And we, we need to, they need to know that we believe what we profess that we believe. And that's true in our walk, in our ways, in our work, in our worship, in our words, in every area of our life. Because a failure in just one of those areas affects all of the other areas. So the challenge is for us to become believable believers. And that's what Paul's great concern was for himself, number one. Paul didn't get his thrills by just preaching to people. Paul's great determination was to be like Christ and be an example to others. And he refers to that in different ways on many occasions. But then he also makes mention of the fact that he wanted the, the churches to become believable. Because them proclaiming the message is one thing, them living the message is another. He was very much aware of the harm that can come whenever we fail to live what we claim we believe. And the power of a godly example is greater than our mind can imagine. We need believers that refuse to budge from the standard of God's Word. And it's no wonder we have such a hard time reaching people today. I don't have time to read the long list, but over the years I'd collected a, a list of statements made by missionaries in regards to their difficulties on the mission field. Wherever it is in the world, Dr. Robert Spears said, After 30 years of leadership in missionary work, it is my conviction and conclusion that the greatest missionary problem is a failure for Christian people to live up to their profession. I, I think he's right. Another one said, more evil is done to the cause of Christianity by its adherents than its opponents. For the world often contrasts a Christian's profession with his practice. When I read things like that, all I can think of is, you know, we ought to do better. We ought to do better than that to leave the impression with others that we can say one thing and live another. And to do that, we have to consider the various areas of our life. And that's what Paul is doing here in our text. You'll notice there's six things he speaks about. Whenever I first read this and thought about it years ago, I said to myself and wondered why, why was it that he chose these things here 
as the standard by which our character is to be measured, I thought, well, you know, if I was going to preach a message on that sermon, I, I might have gone to Galatians chapter 5 and preached about the nine different fruits that make up the fruit of the Spirit, those different graces that make up the fruit of the Spirit. And by the way, that's very telling. You, you read what the Spirit produces in a person's life, and then you look at someone that says they're a Christian, and you don't see any of that. Well, kind of makes you wonder if they're really saved or not. And Paul could have gone that route, as he did on a different occasion. Or Paul could have said, uh, here's the way to settle the issue, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's all about love, what love is and what love does. And he mentions that there. That'd be another good gauge. Wouldn't be anything wrong with that. Because without love, we're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. We're nothing without love. And Paul could have gone that route, but he didn't. And then, by the way, Peter gives us a list of things over in 2 Peter chapter 1. I wish I had time to talk about those things. My, he gives us a list of things there that, that are characteristic of real, true Christians. But now we look at this list, and, and, and before we go to each one, each item, I, I want you to notice exactly what Paul says. He says, an example of the believers. Now notice he did not say an example to the believers. There's a difference there that we need to notice. An example of the believers. Had he said to the believers, he would have been speaking about being an example to the church. Well, that had been well and good, right? Not anything wrong with that. We ought to be an example to one another in the church. But he wants us to go beyond that. He says an example of the believers. So he's talking about us being an example before the world, not, not, just, not just some few that make up the church. By the way, the Lord said something to say about that when he talked about us being what? The salt of the earth and the light of the world. The problem is some folks are concerned about their image in the church, but not their image in the world. They, they don't care what the world thinks about them. You know, they go come to church on Sunday and they worship the Lord and go to work on Monday and uh, use the same language that everybody else uses and listens to the same dirty jokes and, and just uh, acts just like the world. But on Sunday, it's put on their Sunday go-to-meeting clothes and clean up, their, clean up their speech and put a smile on their face and be nice to everybody. Look, we ought to be concerned about being an example to one another in the church. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. But we ought to be the same person outside the church as we are inside the church. Seven days a week, 365 days a year. Be an example of the believers. And remember, the Lord said we're to be what? We're to, we're to proclaim the gospel under the uttermost part of the earth. 
And we do that by being salt and light. We can't isolate ourselves within our beautiful buildings that we construct or be like a monk in a monastery and separate ourselves from the things of the world and say, well, I don't do this and I don't do that. And so uh, that makes me a really good Christian. No, it makes you a lousy Christian if you're really saved for you to just withdraw from the world and have a hands-off approach when it comes to people in the world because we have a mission to reach the world. But listen, the only way that we're going to be effective in reaching others if we become believable believers, notice the list that he gives us. First of all, he says in word. Naturally, that has to do with our speech. He starts here for a reason. Because until, until our tongue is tamed, till it's under control, everything else is going to be out of control. James makes that clear. The unruly tongue, he said, no man can tame it. We can't. We need God's help. Only God can do that. And God expects us to be in such a spiritual state that our speech is controlled by the Lord. Paul's already spoken here in, in, in this chapter about being blameless of good behavior. Chapter 3 talks about not being a brawler. He was aware of the danger of the tongue. And how it affects us and other people. Words are so very powerful. They hurt or they can heal. Over and over again, the Bible gives us warnings about how we use the tongue, our speech. It reveals a lot about us. And being a, being a pastor over half a century, I can tell you that from experience, that many of the church problems involve in some way the misuse of the tongue, whether it's complaining, criticizing, slandering, gossiping, lying. And we need to pray earnestly that God will help us to be an example of the believers in our speech. Solomon said, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. It's something beautiful to behold. And you've been around those kind of people that just have, well, they just have a way of saying things that are gracious and things that, that are helpful and things that uplift. And I mentioned last week the fact, not, well, the last message. I mentioned the fact that so many times Brother Kenneth and I, or any pastor, hears a lot of things that they, they, they don't want to hear. And that, that, because it hurts. And, and I want to tell you, so many times we adults make comments in the presence of those that are younger. And I'll guarantee you, if the two of us kept a logbook of those things and said we're going to post them all up here, who said what to who, you'd be so embarrassed you'd run out of this building. And I mentioned that I mentioned that not to not to belittle you or to beat you up this morning, but to warn you, what you say in the presence of others is so very important. It it, it can heal them or it can destroy them, and it'll certainly have an effect upon the church. And nobody knew that any better than Paul and James. And boy, he starts out right 
at the very beginning, being an example of the believers in word. But then he moves on and he says in conversation. Now, to some that might seem like the same thing because we talk about interacting with each other with words is conversation, but that's not the meaning of this particular Greek word that's translated conversation. This has to do with our, our deportment, our behavior, our manner of life. That's what he's talking about here. And, and, and the point is that as to being the salt and the light in this world, we're to be an example of godliness in every area of our life. If we used a modern phrase, it would be that we must walk the talk or practice what we preach. There has to be some consistency to our claims and our conduct. Someone said many years ago, a minister's life is his ministry. Let that sink in. A minister's life is his ministry. Because basically everything depends upon it. It's not a matter of, uh, of a preacher being eloquent. It's not a matter of him using the, the phrases of some great orator. It's not the matter of him having so many degrees hanging on his office wall. Now all of that is well and good, but if the life doesn't bear up under the scrutiny of the standards of God's word, it's all going to be for naught. Because any, anyone with a lick of sense is not going to believe somebody that doesn't practice what they preach. That doesn't mean that any pastor is perfect, but, but every pastor can strive to be all they can be. An example of a believer in his conversation. Now, Keep in mind that whenever Paul was reminding him of this, he's talking about the model church, and Paul mentions this over in 1 Thessalonians, if you read chapter number 1 and chapter number 2. And he's setting up that church in Thessalonica as being the, the, the standard, basically, by which uh, churches ought to be. And he said, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Verse 7, so we are examples to all that believe in, Ma in, in Macedonia and Achaia. He gives us, gives us three things, a trinity of our behavior and what it ought to be like there. And it has to do with our manner of life. And that's what people are looking at. Uh, several years ago, someone came up with the phrase lifestyle evangelism. They begin to write books about it. I, I have a book somewhere over in the library called Lifestyle Evangelism. You don't hear anything about that anymore. And by the way, there were those that went overboard in that direction that all that's important is that you live just a, you know, a good, clean life and uh, be an example and that's all that's important and didn't really put a lot of emphasis on, on actually witnessing to people, getting out in the streets and going door to door and 
Uh, it was all about your lifestyle. Just be a good lifestyle and good things will happen. Well, the fact of the matter is it takes both a good lifestyle, but it takes also the witness of our lips in speaking the truth of God's Word if we're going to be able to reach others. You might get somewhere by saying, well, I'm going to live a good Christian lifestyle at the place of my employment or at school. I'm going to be different than all of those other kids. I'm going to live like a Christian. And that's well and good, and it might, listen to me, it might, the chance is good that you'll influence a few people in your direction and that eventually they'll attend church with you. Eventually some of them will come to know the Lord. That never relieves you of your responsibility to sit down with them and say, has anybody ever spoke to you about heaven and hell? And has anybody ever spoke to you about being born again? Anybody ever told you what the gospel is? We have a responsibility. A part of our conversation, our behavior is to speak up. Speak out the gospel. And then notice the next thing. He says in charity. Well, as you well know, that word charity means love. And I don't think I need to say any more than that right now. But of all of the things, this is the greatest thing because without it, we're absolutely nothing. I mean, you can, you can do all of the other things correct. You can stop this habit, make a good habit, do this, do that speak well to people, and all of those things. But if there's no love, people will pick up on that quicker than anything. That's why the Lord said over in John chapter number 13, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. That'd be great, wouldn't it? How, how are they going to know that? If you love one another. Remember, he's speaking to the church there. That's not a public proclamation out on a hilltop out for everybody. He's speaking to the, the apostles, those that made up the first church. By them loving one another. He said, you want the world to know you're my disciple? They're going to know by how you love each other. And isn't it a shame sometimes, you know, a church will be very vocal about getting the message out to the world, but yet uh, every time you turn around, somebody's mad at someone within the church, and all of the time there's some kind of a squabble going on. I remember whenever I first moved to the Cincinnati area, I was talking to a fellow about a church in that area, a church that was sound in doctrine, church that was still going and in business and doing great. But the very mention of that church was like lidding a stick of dynamite. All he could talk about is what happened in that church a good 20, 30 years before. The whole community, he said, everybody knows it. That church ain't never going to be anything. 
See, the, the world has a long memory of what they see in Christian people. You and I, you know, we can fail, and, uh, and we do. And we can love each other back into fellowship. It's not that way out there in the world. I'm not at liberty to tell what it was, but when I first moved here, one of the first things I heard, some people still wanted to talk about the failure of a former pastor. Why are we still talking about that? Why? But it was still there after, after all of that time. How sad it is. And we need to understand the danger of you and I as God's people not being able to convince others that we're true believers. We've got to make it so clear that it's undeniable. You know, look, they might not agree with us in all of our doctrine. I mean, even among the independent, fundamental, unaffiliated Baptist churches like we are, I can think of a dozen different little things that we disagree with each other on. There's always something. But we're in enough agreement that we can work together and love one another. But it's not that way whenever we fail to live up to the standard in front of the world. That's why we so often hear it said in so many different ways. You invite someone to church and it's, I'm not, I'm not going to church, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Well, that doesn't excuse them. But let me tell you one thing, it doesn't get them off the hook. People are just looking for something in the church in order to condemn it. By the way, it's not that way. Have you ever noticed in all the other religions why it is that there are more attacks launched against the Lord's church than against the Muslims or anything else? It's because we have the truth. We have something that they don't have, and that's why the attacks are launched against us. How are they going to know? By our charity, by our demonstration of us loving one another. And then notice he says, number four, he says, be an example of the believers, notice in spirit. That word spirit means breath, it means wind. It's, it's a word that's related to energy or force or power. I hesitate to get involved because I... I've got in my mind uh, sometime in the near future preaching a message entitled, Who Are You? Who are you? You say, well, my name's, uh, my name's Kenneth. No, no, that's your name. Who are you? Well, you say, I I'm, I I'm a carpenter. No, that's what you, who are you? Who are you? And it involves your body your soul, and your spirit. And every part of us are affected in some way. And that part that we refer to as the spirit 
is the part that's able to communicate, as it were, with God, the God, God consciousness. And that affects our attitude. Notice our, this is our inward, our emotional attitude. We, we use that term, boy, he's in high spirits today or in low spirits. Talking about our disposition, our temperament. You ever thought about how important the atmosphere of the church is? People are walking and say, boy, it's dead in there today. I, well, it wasn't God's fault. He's here. Somebody says, I just, I, I just feel so far away from God. Well, guess who moved? God is where he is. God, God has promised to meet with his people. The presence of God is here. It's our attitude toward the presence of God that makes up the atmosphere of the church. And that makes, that makes a difference. We can be bitter. We can be sour. We can be critical. We can be proud. We can be morbid. We can be selfish or, or whatever. And each and every one of us make up a part of the atmosphere of the church. It's revealed in several ways. Our love for God, our love for others, our hatred of sin, our desire for holiness, our, our concern for lost people, the, the fullness of our joy. All of those things make up the atmosphere of the church. It's not all about the preaching. It's not all about whether the choir did good today. Boy, one of the greatest compliments that that a church can get is, and, and we've heard it so many times that uh, I love what one person said about it. And they joined, I think at the time that they joined, they were impressed with the church, said it just seemed like being in a, a great big little country church. I thought, well, praise the Lord. That's, that's a good atmosphere if you've been in the little country churches I've been in. That atmosphere that just somewhere or another you just know that people are not only just friendly, they're not just tolerating you, they really care about you. And that makes such a huge difference. And Paul says, I want you to be a good example of the believers, not just in word, not just in deed, not just in your love, but, but in your spirit. And then he says, notice, be an example in faith. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, and there in chapter 11, verse 6, he said, without faith it's impossible to please God. Some time ago I preached a message, I think the title was, had to do with unbelieving believers. And a lot of times we fall into that category, don't we? We are believers. We trusted the Lord for our salvation. We don't have any doubt about that. We're going to heaven whenever we die. But then we turn right around and doubt that God will take care of us while we're here. Worry ourselves sick. Ruin our testimony. Drag others down along with us. And boy, if anything will cripple the church, it's our lack of confidence in God. God not only desires, but demands that we walk in faith. That's not always easy, is it? 
we're required to live on a level that requires divine aid from God because it's beyond us. It's more than we can do. There are times that we look at the situation and we say, how am I supposed to have faith when my world is falling apart and I hurt so bad inside and nobody else can help me. It's just where I'm at in life. And sometimes we treat God like he's disabled or, or dead. Or, or maybe he just doesn't care. I, I read a testimony this last week of a woman. A testimony of her really giving God down the road, as we would say. Writing this to a preacher. How God had failed so miserably. Boy, you look at the long list of poor things that poor woman had gone through and the suffering and the agony. And a lot of people conclude that God has failed us. Let me tell you, God is never confused about what needs to happen in our life. And he's not the author of evil. Whatever God allows, he allows for a good reason. If I drop dead before this message is over, there's a good reason for it. Whatever happens, and it doesn't mean that God has failed. It means that God knows a whole lot more about life than you and I do. He's never confused about what ought to happen next. And then notice it says impurity. Example of the believers in purity. We sure don't hear much talk about that today. The pulpits are strangely silent whenever it comes to holiness and the hatred of sin. And yet it's essential to our testimony. Think about uh, our testimony as a Christian and our goal in life, our, our constant aim. And there's no doubt about what Paul wanted. What He wanted to be like Jesus. That, that was his desire more than anything else. And what we become depends upon our inner man. That's why he speaks about in spirit and what's going on within us. In purity. I can't tell you how many different ways that things have changed since I started preaching. And I promise you, you don't want to hear the list of all of the things that I could mention. The things associated with whether or not you're living the Christian life or not. We had blue laws back then. You couldn't buy or sell on Sunday. Especially, it took a while, especially you couldn't buy or sell liquor on Sunday. People didn't shop on Sunday. And I can tell you right now out of experience, as a pastor of a church, been there, done that, if you went to see the Cincinnati Reds play on Sunday, it's because you are an immature believer that needs to grow up. You're living a worldly life. How is it that 
Now, I know that. I'm just using that as an example. Believe it. Believe me whenever I say there's a lot of areas of our life that we could deal with that used to be common when it come to the manner of our, our morality and, and the need to live a life that is holy and pure before God and blameless in the sight of others. And I don't care how much people resent it, how much preachers neglect it, it's still right here in the Word of God. Someone wrote, the eye is a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. Yes, I may misunderstand you and high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Does it really matter? Well, it mattered to a fellow by the name of Stanley how many of you read the life of David Livingston? If you haven't, the great missionary that really how many ever read to the Golden Shore Batter? I'm Judson. Let me tell you, uh, I, do yourself a favor. Read those biographies of those great missionaries that went out. You see, today we think we're flying high and really doing great. And the truth of the matter is, when we look back at our spiritual forefathers, for the most part, Christianity is a sham today compared to the dedication they had for the Lord in those days. David Livingston. Well, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story, but Stanley was sent over to Africa to, well, he was a journalist, go over there and get the story on this Livingston guy because the whole world's talking about him and it's exciting and what is, it'll, it'll sell good. Sir Henry Stanley loaded up, went over to Africa, and I'm going to read you what he said after having observed David Livingston's life, he said, I went to Africa as prejudiced against religious religion as the worst infidel in London to a reporter like myself who had only to deal with wars, mass meetings and political gatherings, sentimentality uh, uh, matters were quite out of my province but there came to me a long time for reflection. I was out there away from a worldly world. I saw the solidarity, this solitary old man, Livingston. And I asked myself, why does he stop here in such a place? What is it that inspires him? For months after we met, I found myself listening to him, wondering at the old man carrying out the words, leave all and follow me. But little by little, seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how he went quietly about his business, I was converted by him, although he had not tried in any way to do it. The power of a godly example. 
He goes over there not to find out how to get to heaven. He just wants to get the scoop on this missionary because it'll sell a lot of papers. And he wonders why would anyone trudge about the jungles of Africa? Read the story of Judson and Livingston and those people and what they lost. It's amazing what they lost and never gave up. Some staying 30, 40 years, unlike missionaries today, without coming back every year to get their support raised. They stayed on the field. Did things that we wouldn't even think about doing today. Some of them, it was seven years, I believe, it was Judson before he had his first convert. Seven years. Going through all of those trials and some of them beaten and imprisoned. Livingston came back naturally. The Bible colleges, the seminaries all wanted him to speak in there. And he did on occasion speak. Still had the scars on his body from the attack by the lions. Let me tell you, those scars, that lifestyle, that sacrifice that he made spoke so much that no one could ever claim him of being an unbelievable believer. And I pray today, folks, that we'll determine to be believable believers before our family, our co-workers, everywhere we go. It's one thing to hand them a track that's got the message on it. That's good. Thank God for that. Keep doing that. It's another thing to live like they're willing to read what you gave them. Many of you, some of you at least here today, you were saved, you maybe in Sunday school, maybe in church, but somewhere along the line, along with the hearing of the gospel, there is someone who had such an influence in your life that it helped you when you decided to trust Christ. How many of you raise your hands? There was someone in my life like that. Look at that. Look at that. Someone. And you can be that someone to someone else, folks. God help us to be an example of the believers. And again, even as I issue that challenge, I realize that I'm doing so to a church that I am so proud of. And at the same time I make that statement, I think about Paul saying the things he did to the church at Thessalonica, which was the model church in his estimation, the model church. The church that really had it together. And he didn't hesitate for a moment. In essence, he was saying, you're, you're good, you're, you're doing great, let's do better. And I'll 
I promise you the moment that we as an individual or a church get to that point in our life that we feel like we have arrived, we have attained, this is good enough, we're at the level that's high enough, we're backslidden. It's going to get worse instead of better. God help us to keep growing and growing and growing throughout our Christian life. There may be someone here today that's unsaved. I, I don't know, but I, I hope today that they'll stop right now and think about someone. Because I hope at least, if nothing else, I've left them the impression that I'm serious about what we're talking about and this church is serious about what I'm talking about. And we're serious about it because your eternal destiny depends upon what you think of Jesus Christ. And we want to give you the best impression that we possibly can. If you'll trust him, he'll save you. Let's all stand together. Brother Steve's going to come and the musicians. Brother Kenneth will be here. If God's speaking to your heart about anything whatsoever, this would be a great time to say, Preacher, I don't want to leave here today without, uh, without getting this, this matter settled in my heart. Father, use your word this morning. May we be challenged to live to a level that's well, a level that's even higher than what we're able to do on our own. And I confess, Lord, I need your help. Confess, Lord, that there are certain times that because of an attitude of confusion or discouragement or whatever, that it would even make me reluctant to, to speak about Christ. There are times in our life where maybe we're overcome, defeated by something that would make us reluctant to sit down with a child and to take the Bible and show them the way to heaven. God help us to be examples of the believers that we might reach others for Jesus. But we pray in His name. Amen. While we sing